Welcome to the sermon podcast of Exodus Church, located in Belmont, North Carolina. For more information about our church and the many ways you can be involved, please go to our website at theexoduschurch.org or email us at info at theexoduschurch.org. Thank you, David. I appreciate it, brother. And uh, uh, it's good to see you all this morning and to worship with you. Um, as, as David said, this is the first time I've been in, in the new facility, which I know isn't that new, but it's new to me. Uh, and I, as I said in the first service, um, uh, I, got, I got a tour of it earlier this week. We were here for another event, and um, man, I was so impressed. And I, I mean, I've been to many churches, but what y'all have done with this space, and I know it wasn't just a matter of money. I know it was blood, sweat, and tears poured into this facility. It's really impressive what God has done uh, through your efforts and how God is planting the gospel here, quite literally uh, putting down stakes in the real estate of Belmont for the gospel here. And so I'm greatly encouraged to be here and really grateful for this opportunity to, to worship with you all this morning. Uh, well, as David said, I have three sons. They are all Gen Z. And Gen Z uh, grew up, my children not so much. We were a little bit uh, more strict with internet access, but Gen Z was the first generation to really grow up with the proverbial iPhone in their face. And so they grew up with a constant flux of source of information being thrown at them, a super highway of information, and some might say disinformation, (laughs) being thrown at them, and they know it. See, I grew up with a screen too, maybe you did, television screen, but it wasn't as obvious to me why I wanted fruity pebbles every Saturday morning. You know, I didn't realize I was being advertised to the way I think my kids know they're being sold something every second. They're being manipulated and they feel it. And as a result, Gen Z has been described as the most skeptical generation. I have a friend who's a professor at USC, University of South Carolina. He says, when I tell my students of this generation uh, something that I have a PhD in, they don't believe me until they Google it. It's not true until it's been Googled, until it's Snope checked, you know, it's not real. And we understand why, like, don't we? Like, if you're constantly being sold and manipulated, I understand why we'd be skeptical, even cynical. Uh, and we're all, whatever generation we're a part of, I think there's deep doubts that have developed for us here uh, in, in America. We have doubts about our usual sources of information, our usual authorities, our institutions. We doubt government. We doubt our educational institutions. We, we are skeptics, not without good reason, of the church. When we see great leaders fall so grievously. And so the question is, who will we trust? And what often happens is the usual sources of authority, uh, when those are ignored, the usual suspects, we go to some unusual sources. And in some ways, we can be quite skeptical in one way, but very gullible in others, like believing everything on Google or everything the fact checkers fact check, right? Um, uh, even to what we've seen over the last year where the most ludicrous of conspiracy theories uh, that once occupied only the darkest corners of the internet are now on Aunt Bertha's Facebook page, right? Uh, it's like G.K. Chesterton, the, the, the writer said, he said, when I cease to believe in God, the source of all authority, it's not that I don't believe nothing now, it's that I believe anything. I become all the more naive about certain things. And so the question is, 
What is trustworthy? Because when you're constantly battling, is this true? Is that true? If you're fact-checking all the time, you're exhausted. I mean, I'm exhausted. Like 2020 is exhausting, not least because of all the misinformation. Am I alone on that? Like, it was ex- wasn't it exhausting? And so we long for like a cognitive rest. Like, where's truth? Where can I like lay down and be convinced this is right, this is true? Where can I have that cognitive rest? And this morning, what I want to look at is someone who I think is trustworthy. As we look at the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, as we experience his words to us, I think we'll experience his trustworthiness. And what's striking is I think as we experience this trustworthiness, I think we ourselves who are not always, speaking for myself, trustworthy, become more trustworthy. In fact, would you open your Bibles with me to the Sermon on the Mount? We're picking up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, where Jesus continues his message to the disciples, saying, again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this is from evil or from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken from the beginning, and your word is sure. When you spoke creation into the void... It was created. And that when you sent your son, you sent the word who was with God from the beginning, who was God, into the world to speak truth to us. And now you have sent your Holy Spirit that we might hear and see and know the truth. So, Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears this morning and let me speak truthfully for the sake of your people, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John Murray, uh, a much respected theologian of the 20th century, wrote this. He said, scarcely any part of the Sermon on the Mount has given occasion for more difference of interpretation and application than this text. So I'm grateful that Brian gave me this one. Um, but a lot of Christians throughout, throughout history have taken Jesus' words quite literally. I say, make no oath at all, and said, it is wrong for a Christian to enter into an oath, even to pledge allegiance to the flag, and perhaps even to make marriage vows. We're not to enter into these things. Jesus says so, right? Well, that is a possible interpretation, but it is probably the not, it's not what Jesus intended. And I say that for a few reasons. One, the apostles were quite taken by this teaching of Jesus. In fact, James, the half-brother of Christ, uh, wrote perhaps the earliest letter in our Bibles actually repeats this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, dear brothers and sisters, above everything else, do not swear or make an oath, either by heaven or earth. Let your yes be yes 
and your no be no, so that you don't come under condemnation. So this, this word weighed heavy with the, with the disciples. As we'll see, it was so striking. But yet the apostles themselves entered into oaths. Paul himself voluntarily enters into oaths repeatedly in the New Testament. He even places congregations under oaths as he gives them charges and says things like, I adjure you in the presence of God. He, he, he requires them to enter oath. Uh, interestingly, Jesus himself, on, while he's on trial, though he's silent throughout the whole trial, once he's placed under oath, then bears the good witness of himself and says, it is as you say. Even God, the Almighty, swears on an occasion or two. (laughs) Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, the psalmist writes, I will not lie to David. The author of Hebrews explains, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, his word and then the oath that verified that word, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to what God has set before us. So God gives oaths himself, not for his sake, but for ours. We go, yeah, God swore by himself because there's nothing greater to swear by. (laughs) So as to give me certainty, to give me rest. Yes, I can trust in this. I I can build my life on this. And that's the important function of oaths and vows uh, that we see. They're, they're important, like a contract. A contract says, I will do what you pay me to do on pain of penalty. Or I, I will pay you to do the things I'm asking you to do uh, on pain of penalty. It, it, in a world of lies where we are called to be discerning, right? We're, we're called to trust, to risk trust, but to, to trust that which is trustworthy and not everything is. We're called to be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents, right? So we're not naive. And so in in a world of lies, we do need contracts and oaths and vows. In fact, the Old Testament commands that you will fear the Lord your God and you will make your vows in his name. The righteous man is a man who swears by God and keeps his, his oath. The psalmist writes this, who will sojourn in your holy tent, O God? The answer, he who speaks truth in his heart, who doesn't slander his neighbors, who makes no reproach against his friend, who swears to his own hurt. That means he makes an oath and he keeps it even when it hurts. He swears to his own hurt. The Bible does say don't make vows stupidly, right? Like don't make a vow that you don't need to make. It does talk about making a vow and then, and then not keeping it. And now you're doubly guilty of sin. So it says things like this. When you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying it. It's better that you shouldn't vow than that you should vow and then not do it. So there's, there's a discernment there of when to use those vows. And that's the context here for what Jesus says in verse 33. Look again at what he says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, to the patriarchs and the matriarchs. It was passed down from Sinai down through the ages into the synagogue to Jesus' day, you will not swear falsely, but perform what the, you have uh, sworn to the Lord. And there's two elements here. In fact, Jesus isn't quoting a verse here like he, he is in the other sections where he says, you have heard it said, and he quotes straight from Scripture. This is a synthesis of different commandments. Uh, for instance, uh, Numbers 30, if a man vows a vow to the Lord, 
Uh, he shall not break his word. He will do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. In other words, if you make an oath, you better do it and do all of it, right? You better have follow through. But there's also another element, and that is blasphemy. So in, in Leviticus, he says, you will not swear by my name falsely, Moses writes, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. And so both elements here are, are synthesized together. Um, and this is important because this is what Jesus is getting at as he says, but I say to you. Remember last week, Brian reminded us that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with this preface, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It must surpass, which is a tall order because those were the religious gurus of the day. Saying so it must surpass that because their righteousness was performative. It was a show. And this, this was most obvious in how they used oaths and vows. Later in this gospel, in Matthew 23, Jesus exposes the Pharisees. He addresses them uh, head on and says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If you swear by the temple, no biggie. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, then you better do it. Right? They played those kinds of games. This kind of like, yes, but I was holding my fingers crossed behind my back, so it doesn't count. And they had a whole system for it. In an ancient Jewish collection of writings called the Mishnah, for instance, you see this. Where one rabbi says, if you swear by Jerusalem, it's nothing. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, you better do it. Right? And Jesus actually literally says, swearing toward Jerusalem here in verse 35. He actually uses that phrase. And so this was, a, this was a common problem in ancient Judaism, that they had all these rules. And what they're doing is this. I want you to believe me, and I want to have the social capital of being believable. So I'm going to swear in ways that, that kind of get close to bringing up the name of God, but kind of technically avoid it, so that I don't have to pay the cost, the perceived cost, if I don't keep my word. So I want the capital without the cost. Does that make sense? It's like when you're, you're you know... Um, when you're a kid and your, your, your mom and dad ask you, did you clean your room? You go, well, I made the bed. Okay, I didn't ask that. Did you clean the room? Well, my desk is clean. That's great. Did you clean your room, right? But Jesus says here in verse 37, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Let, just let it be really simple. It's really simple. There's no complicated answer. There's no equivocation, no vacillation. It's just yes or no. It's like now that Facebook has introduced the maybe option, the interested option. You ever try to plan a Facebook event? And it's like, I have four yeses and 400 interested. I have no idea how to plan for this event, right? In our, in our like commitment phobic culture, we're not very good at this. Because it'd be easy for us to look at ancient Israel, to look under, at Jesus's audience and go, that's so dumb. That's so silly that they played those games. But you know, we play the same game. And, and they're not just games that are sort of, well, I'm fibbing a bit. They're blasphemous. because We are evoking a sense of God's presence often, not always, but often, in, a, in order to get that social capital. Um, so let me give you a couple of examples. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, one, one from Islam and one from Christianity. So in Islam... Uh, I have a friend who's a missionary to Muslims, and he says, if you ever invite a Muslim over for dinner, and his answer to you is, inshallah, which means if Allah wills, 
you can be sure he's not coming to dinner, right? Like that's his nice way of saving face by saying, I don't really want to come to your house, but I'm not going to say no. What I'm going to say is if God wills. <laughs> and then of course, what's the implication? I wanted to come, but God wasn't in the cards, man. It's God's fault, not mine, right? Like we're evoking God in order to avoid, and we do the same thing, right? Like kind of like, hey, can you help me move this Saturday? I'll pray about it. <laughs> that means nope. Right? Like, but it's, it's couched in this religious language and it's, it's taking the Lord's name in vain. Perhaps a more serious example for us is this one I'll pray for you. I want you to think about that phrase. Because as Christians, when we say, I'll pray for someone, what are we saying? We're saying this I'm going to take your need, your concern, your burden, and in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, I'm going to lift you up. That's what you're saying. Because as Christians, we pray in the name of Christ, whether explicitly by ending our prayers with it or implicitly, because all of us only have access to the throne of grace because of Jesus. It's through him that we pray. It's through him that we have an ear with the Almighty. And so it's always in his name that we pray. So when we, when we just sort of flippantly say, oh, I'll pray about that, and then don't, don't you know we have taken the name of the Lord in vain? And so for me as a pastor, this is an occupational hazard of no small consequence. People ask me to pray for them all the time. And it's my great privilege to pray with people. And so I've had to learn, how do I negotiate this? How do I maintain my integrity and not take the Lord's name in vain? When I have a barrage weekly, hey, pastor, will you pray for me on this? There's two things that have helped me. Maybe they'll help you. I'll just throw this out real quick. One is when someone says, hey, will you pray for me? Stop right then and there and pray with them. And I know that's awkward. You know, like sometimes you're in a bustling cafe and people are around you. But it's okay to be awkward. We're Christians. We're really good at awkward, right? You can do that. We can pray right then and there. Now, there are times, however, that this, the topic of prayer or the issue involved is very sensitive. And it would be inappropriate to pray publicly, right? It wouldn't be the right place or time. And so there are times we have to say, hey, I promise I'll pray for you about that. But one of the things that have been most helpful to me, and I stole this from Paul Miller. He has an excellent, excellent book. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you called A Praying Life. But in there, he talks about a system of prayer cards. And I'm old-fashioned, so I just have literal index cards. And I write down people's names and their prayer requests bulleted. And then I cycle through that index card on my prayer days. Or when I have like a, an hour, I'll do a prayer walk. I'll just kind of cycle through those cards. Um, you can do that electronically. If you're, if you're a little bit more savvy tech-wise, tech you can do virtual cards, right? But some kind of app to keep up with those prayer requests. And that's really been helpful for me. But Jesus' logic as to why we are not to swear by heaven, earth, or anything else is really interesting. Look again at verses 35, or 34 and following. <clears throat> but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. What's he doing here? Now, one of the, the, the games that the, the religious folks of the time were playing in order to get the social capital of an oath, so you'll believe me, you'll trust me, I'll save face, but not have to pay the cost of actually having to keep it and not feel my conscience bound by it, is they would do a circumlocution. That's a fancy word for saying they would talk around something. They would talk around God. So they wouldn't swear by God. They'd swear by heaven. 
And then when they were caught and they're like, well, I technically didn't swear by God, I swore by heaven, right? That's the game that's being played here. And, uh, and we, you know, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. Kingdom of heaven is a circumlocution for kingdom of God. So Jesus uses those kinds of circumlocutions as well. They're not wrong. It's wrong to think that you can evoke God's presence in a roundabout way and not really be evoking God's presence. And so what he's saying here is when you swear by heaven, you've sworn by God. And when you swear by earth, you've sworn by God. When you swear by Jerusalem, you've sworn by God. Right? And likewise, and you swear by your own head, you're like, surely my head is mine. If anything's mine, it's my head. He's like, yes, but it's on loan, right? Like it's not yours. As we sang this morning, all of creation is his by definition as creator. You can't, and he's like, you don't have no power over your head. You can't turn one hair gray or black. Otherwise I wouldn't have all this gray up here if I could do that. You can't do that. You have no authority over your head. So when you swear by your head, you're swearing by him. You know, this morning we're going to have the privilege of watching a baptism. Did you know that when you're baptized, as Jesus says here at the end of this gospel, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means God's name. If you are a, a baptized Christian, and all Christians should aim to be obedient, to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. If you're a baptized Christian, the name of God is upon you, which means there is no place in this earth, whether in the privacy of our homes, at work, where we do not have God's name on us, and where therefore what we have to say does not represent him, the king. Even the most mundane things that we shade the truth on, we speak for the king. We represent heaven itself. And there's no vacation from this. You can take a vacation, but not from being a disciple. You can, I can take a break from being a pastor, but I'm always, always a disciple of Jesus. And I always bear his name. And so even the, even, even the most uh, seemingly inconsequential conversations, what, the, the slightest word we pass on, the wee bit of slander or unsubstantiated uh, proposition that we forward along or we put out there into the internet, all of that we represent the king. And there's a real liability. If our yes is not yes and our no is not no, if we are not truth tellers, we do damage to the witness of the gospel. I want you to look one last point here with me to where Paul deals with this very thing with the Corinthians. You see, as a background of this, on the screen you'll see from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. You can turn there if you like, but it should be on the screen. Paul told the Corinthians that he was going to see them on his way back from Macedonia or to Macedonia and back again. But because of circumstances that were beyond his control, and that happens, like we say we'll do things, and then we have to sort of sometimes back out because circumstances change. That's why James says, no one should just make all these plans and pronounce them. You should say, if God wills, right? But don't use that as an excuse to not do what you said you're going to do, right? So Paul made these plans. He was going to visit the Corinthians and he never showed up. And his critics in Corinth were like, see, Paul cannot be trusted. And more importantly, his message cannot be trusted. 
Look at, look at what he says here. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come to you from Macedonia and have you send me to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? That is, in this unstable, equivocating way, this like untrustworthy way, ready to say yes, yes, and in the same breath, no, no. Surely, as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. This equivocation, this complex, confusing word, it's been simple. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, a confusing word, an unsure word, an equivocating word that you cannot build your life on, that is unstable and collapses. No, it's always yes. You see what Paul's doing there? He's saying, if, if, I, if my integrity is thrown in doubt, if I am proven to be a man not of my word, my whole gospel message is brought into question. And God forbid, God forbid that our witness to the gospel is questioned because of our lack of truth-telling, of our, of our not being trustworthy people as disciples of Jesus. But look what he goes on to say. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All of them. In Jesus, God has kept his word. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. So it's like, guys, not only do I not want you to question this, I want you to be reaffirmed in the truth of the gospel. And I want you to, the amen is like, yes, and yes, indeed. It's like this exclamation point that God is truthful and has kept his word. In fact, he kept his word at great cost to himself. He promised Father Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless every nation. No matter how bad you foul things up, Abraham, I will do it. And he swore to David, David, I'm going to bring grace to all the kingdoms of the earth through your sons. No matter how bad they mess stuff up, I'll discipline them, but I will not take my promise away. God swore to his own hurt because on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the great cost of our lies. He paid the cost for what was true about us. And this is what this means. We can be truthful because whatever cost we have to pay for saying yes, yes, no, no, whatever cost we have to pay for being truthful, the greatest cost has already been paid. So we might lose a job. We might lose a relationship. We might lose face. We can pay that because the greatest cost has already been paid in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though you are a God of absolute truth and faithfulness, that there's no wiggle room to play with the truth in your economy. There is grace in your economy for liars like us. Lord, I pray that we would receive your grace now, this morning, that we would trust you as the trustworthy one, and that we would be cleansed of our duplicity and become men and women of integrity. We pray in Christ's name.